Hello and welcome back to the Primary Education Voices podcast, the podcast dedicated to the exciting world of primary education with me, your host, Matt Roberts. If you're a member of staff in primary education, then this podcast is for you. Each episode will be interviewing a special guest who works in a primary setting and be finding out what inspires them. We'll also be asking them for their top tips, resources and philosophies that they are passionate about in this wonderful profession. And of course, share some of the funny stories that happen along the way. Today, uh, we sit down with Sarah Watkins, who's known on Twitter as at mini underscore Lebowski. Um, She has been working in primary education for over a decade and has had a great amount of experience in a number of areas during that time, from nursery all the way to year six. Uh, She's worked as a leader in education in her her school and and beyond, and is now beginning an exciting um, chapter in training teachers as well uh, at higher education. And so it was great to sit down with Sarah today and just to hear what her philosophy is and her primary three, really, the most important things she thinks uh, that we have to remember about primary education in our careers uh, to help our children make the best progress uh, in a number of ways that they can. Uh, It was great to sit down with Sarah. So I'm going to let you enjoy this episode. Sit back, relax and enjoy the Primary Education Voices podcast interview with Sarah Watkins. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Sarah Watkins. How are you doing today, Sarah? I'm really good, thank you, Matt. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us. You you came recommended by Kate Aspin, and so we're so grateful to have you on Primary Education Voices today. So uh, once again, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great. Well, we'll start with your quick fire questions. And so these are not to worry about. They are some questions just to get to know you, your background a bit, and some of the things you enjoy about primary education, just so our listeners get a snippet of you in the first five minutes or so. So first of all, Sarah, what is your Twitter handle? It's Mini Lebowski, Mini underscore Lebowski. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Always helpful to have right at the start so people know where to find you on Twitter. Uh, How many years have you been in primary education, Sarah? Um, I've taught in primary for just over a decade. Excellent. Fantastic. And in that decade, uh, what are some of the what's you've been your journey so far in primary education? What roles and responsibilities have you had? Um, I've taught from nursery right up to year six. It's been quite interesting, really. Uh, I've only trained in in early years, but then I was put in key stage two, which was a bit of a shock, um, but really enjoyed that. Um, And then I became an SLE in English. And that's quite a rigorous interview scheme. Uh, Then I was assistant head and head of English for a federation of 10 schools. That was really interesting. So coordinating English across a federation and also working with other schools. Um, And then I was made head of school um, and I was head of school of the school that I went to as a child. So that's kind of been my journey so far. Wow, that's fantastic. I can I can definitely uh, confirm that the, the process to be an SLE is quite rigorous. I, I myself was put in a room with six head teachers. I think that was the most terrifying experience I've had in my life. Uh, but a really interesting one as well. So it sounds like you've had a lot of experience there from nursery to right through to year six, which is brilliant. Um, what is your favourite subject and why, Sarah? My favourite subject to teach Yes. Um, I would say it's really hard, isn't it? As a primary teacher, obviously, you're teaching all those different subjects. And I think on different days, you know, you have different favourites. I mean, I do love English. It was my favourite subject at school. I really enjoyed it. Um, My dad's a journalist and a writer. um, And I I guess I would if I had to choose one, uh, it's like choosing your favourite child, isn't it? I would say English. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, sometimes it's really hard that question because like you say we do like a variety of subjects i guess that's why you know a number of people may have gone into primary education because you get to teach that variety Uh, but it is hard to choose sometimes but no that's fantastic english why would you say you like english so much was it like you say your father had that background or was it was it other factors as well for yourself it does help doesn't it if you feel successful in that area so if it's one of your strengths i'm sure that helps cement it as as your favorite um I, i think there's also just so much variety within English, isn't there? Mm. Um, I mean, with, uh, with some of the other subjects, it's a, a fairly linear straight line. But with English, I mean, you've got the reading and the writing. And, and both of those can take you on so many different journeys. And it's just amazing to see children being transported on those journeys. And I, I do feel that English can be accessible to, to people, to children of all different abilities as well. There's so many ways into it. Um, and I know it can be challenging, you know, for some children, but just seeing children really enjoying being on that adventure is marvellous. <laughs> brilliant. Um, in your own education, Sarah, was there a favourite teacher that you had and why were they your favourite teacher? 
Uh, well, I had one teacher very briefly called Miss Clark, um, who, this is awful. The main reason I remember her is that she left quite quickly after I joined her class and uh, set up a sweet shop. And she came back to visit us and brought loads and loads of sweets. <laughs> and that really stood out in my memory. We were stood in the playground and, and Mrs. Clark came back with all these sweets. And we just thought, this is mind blowing that this could be a career. You could go and open your own sweet shop and you'd just be surrounded by sweets and chocolate all day. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but like you say, as a as a child, why would you not remember that? This this exactly. ex, ex teacher coming back with loads of sweets and chocolates like a dream come true. <laughs> it really brilliant. stuck in my memory. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Okay, and then the last quick fire question, Sarah. If you had to, or if you already do, uh, what after school club would you run? Um, well, I really enjoyed running Eco Club, and I'm currently writing a book and um, for it on that subject because I found it quite challenging I loved it it was my favorite club to run but it was challenging to think of different activities every week so my new book is going to be a combination of photos and text and lots of inspiration for people who are running an eco club because I found it really tricky I had uh, four-year-olds to 11-year-olds and finding activities that um, would satisfy uh, all of those age groups was was really difficult uh, so yeah that was definitely one of my favorites to to do I think one of my favorite sessions are when we I found some old records and um, vinyl records at a charity shop and we melted those and made those into planters and they were amazing you know the united with them of course when I took them in none of the children knew what they were <laughs> it's, I mean it is quite old-fashioned they just I was showing them and said what do you think you do with these and none of the children could tell me they were saying I don't know throw them is it a game <laughs> like little mini discuses just to throw exactly absolutely that's excellent and like you say actually that's a really interesting point i've not considered is kind of the eco club you know a lot of people a lot of schools will have eco clubs but obviously it's one of those clubs that which will have a cross-section of the entire school and so you've got to try and think of activities that will suit right from some some schools right from reception or early years or right up to year six and so now it sounds like that'd be a really useful resource there that you mentioned that's fantastic i hope so well, let's uh, let's move on to the the main questions then that we've uh, that I've sent over to you uh, and and see what we we can get from these because there's a lot of great ideas so far already. Um, so first of all, what inspired you to become involved in primary education, Sarah? Well, I come from a family of teachers, and my mum uh, was a teacher, and she didn't come from she was the first person in her family who'd gone to university so it's a really good achievement um, and she taught for years uh, she taught in London where I was born um, in a city London um, and then we moved to a rural area um, and she started teaching in pupil referral units so obviously she was a, a real role model for me but I could see how challenging it was not so much the teaching but all the bureaucracy and the other aspects that went with it and that was quite frustrating for her um, and so I kind of avoided it a little bit. My sister, my middle sister is a teacher. My brother-in-law is a teacher. Uh, my little sister works at a sixth form in pastoral care. Um, but I kind of avoided that formal teaching for quite a while. So as I, I joined a charity uh, where we work with disadvantaged young people. So working very much with young people who are outside the system. Um, and that was really interesting, hearing about their very negative experience of school and how it took them down different paths and different routes. Um, and then I became an arts officer with the local council. And that was fascinating, going into schools and being asked to set up and run creative projects uh, that fit in with the curriculum. And I kind of had a misguided view of school a little bit. I think from doing that type of work, I thought, wow, you know, primary schools, most of the day they just spend doing these incredible creative projects, which... <laughs> bring the curriculum to life I didn't really see the other side of it the data gathering you know uh, the the general sort of English and math teaching so in that role of arts officer I, I kind of got a misguided view a little bit of what primary education was about um, but it really made me feel I wanted to retrain to be a teacher um, so I applied for the GTP course which was amazing because as someone with a young family um, I was able to get this bursary of £15,000 to, to retrain. It was a very competitive um, course to get onto, um, but it was a fantastic course, really, really enjoyed it. Um, so that was kind of my route into primary teaching. 
Fantastic. And so obviously, um, <laughs> it's funny that because you, you had this uh, this idea of going into the creative school, doing these creative projects, seeing the wonderful, exciting things that happen when you're going in. But of course, there were some other things which perhaps you were, you were surprised with. But it's interesting, actually, because you mentioned that you're from a family of teachers. And I think that you're the first to have mentioned that that kind of put you off a bit, <laughs> seeing the bureaucracy and all that kind of thing and the kind of the paperwork that goes into all of that. But it's obviously brilliant because it, you, you had that experience, saw your family and saw how they were, had the uh, enrichment from that. And then I had the opportunity to go into schools yourself and kind of have that chance to see what it was like and then dive into it. I guess uh, a question I've got then is uh, when you started that retraining process, do you remember a moment where you kind of were training or in school or whenever where you just thought, yeah, this is this is right. You know, this education is where I'm meant to be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's funny because my mum very specifically said, don't go into teaching. <laughs> and my, my son's now considering it and I, I sort of have mixed feelings about that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I would say it was probably the third placement, which was really strange because it was in the school where I went to as a child, my third placement. And it was where I eventually ended up being head of school. And I think most trainees have this moment where perhaps you're on your third placement uh, you're teaching 80 percent of the week um and the person who was supervising me it was such a tiny school you know she said oh you know you're pretty much on your own you know you can go now and it was completely what i needed um and it was wonderful just having that time where they were sort of my class in quotation marks um, and i could play around and, and get creative and and really get to grips with the curriculum and behavior and so on uh, and working with the other staff and i think that was the time where i felt yeah this is this is really for me yeah just diving in and doing the role having the majority of the teaching timetable and making that your own that sounds fantastic that's great well thanks for sharing that uh, and uh, that's been a really interesting journey into it as well so that's been really useful to learn about uh, obviously in primary education we have a lot of funny things that happen along the way and some uh, things that uh, just we look back on with uh, great humor so what, what's a funny story you can share from being in primary education it's really difficult to choose because there's so many funny things that happen when you're on primary education. I think especially in early years as well, on a daily basis, you know, the children really make you laugh. We, we make each other laugh. Um, but I think one of the funniest stories was when we had comic relief. I was in year five. And one of the staff in the school decided it'd be a really good idea to ask every child in the school to, to bring in a joke. There's a really big school, three, form entry. Um, and it was it was a great idea. So every child took a little slip home um, and then they wrote their little joke and their name uh, and their age. And that was brought into the school. So in the morning, uh, we had 90 in a year group. So someone came up and said, you know, we need to collect your, your 90 jokes to go on a display. Uh, in the lunch hall, we had two lunch halls, one for early years in key stage one and one for key stage two so we're gathering them all together getting all these jokes together the children were really excited you know wanting to read them out and I said no 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 it's got to be a big surprise for later uh, so all the jokes went down with this person uh, and were stapled up over the display boards around the hall which made a fantastic display you know looked really effective uh, so this was about say 9 30 in the morning and then later on in the afternoon uh, we decided that we'd go down as a year group uh, we had the, there was a microphone set up on stage. It was great, like a little comedy club. We thought we'd start to read out some of these jokes. So my colleague and I, unfortunately, our third colleague had had to go home sick. So we had the sort of 90 children. There was the two of us. The, the children were all sitting in the hall waiting for these jokes to be, to be read out. So, of course, they were really excited about hearing their own joke that they brought in. Uh, so my colleague said to me, well, what we're going to have to do is pull those off the board now, uh, one at a time, because you know, they've been stapled on there, be there displayed all day. Um, so I started to pull them off and bring them over to her. And we sort of took it in turns to read them out to the children who were just roaring with laughter at their, at their peers' jokes. And it was going really well. And then one of the last jokes I, I pulled off, it was a, a little girl in my class who was new to the school, didn't have very much English. Um, and she got her parents to Google a joke and, and just they just wrote it down on here so I started to read it out had the microphone in front of me and I kind of as you do skipped ahead a little bit with my eyes saw a word starting with p that couldn't be repeated in front of the children <laughs> connected to the male anatomy and I thought oh right okay cannot read this <laughs> and just stopped where I was and I said oh I tried to think of an excuse I said oh I, I don't think we can we haven't got any time now to read this joke anymore but in the meantime my colleague had grabbed this joke off me 
read it, we both thought to ourselves, okay, this has been on display all morning and all day. And for some reason, it just gave us the giggles so badly. And the children were quite intrigued. They were laughing because we were giggling. I think we grabbed another joke to read out anyway. But it's a bit like when you're in assembly, when you're little, and you just can't stop giggling. Every time we looked at each other, we started giggling again. And we, it was rather unprofessional, but we ended up just rolling around on the floor on this stage. We just couldn't stop giggling. <laughs> and even 48 hours later, when we caught each other's eyes, we just kept laughing about this joke. And the little girl was saying afterwards, you thought my joke was funny? And I said, oh, yeah, it was so funny. It was wonderful. It was such a good joke. <laughs> that's amazing the I unrepeatable love joke <laughs> I, mean, I mean the context itself is, is hilarious anyway because obviously uh, there was moments where you just think oh this has been up the entire day maybe the whole school's walked past and has seen this up on the wall who knows who's seen this but actually then like you say with you and your colleague just that reaction just made it even ten times funnier which is brilliant uh, I love I the idea go on say when you've got a good relationship, you know, with your colleague, and it just doesn't take much to set you off. And even now when we talk about it, it just gives us the giggles years later. I, I can't really explain why, but it, as you say, the fact that it had been up all day. <laughs> <laughs> like, actually, that's a brilliant idea for Comet Relief, just getting the kids to bring in jokes. We, um, we did that in my first year, actually. And I do remember to this day one joke a child said, not because it was, it, it just really tickled me. Like, and it just made me laugh so much. It was, uh, I can remember it today. It was, why, why is a pepper nosy? Um, and the, and the punchline is because they get jalapeno business. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) because you know, you know, the jokes that kids bring in, you know, you kind of sit there and go, Oh yeah, very good. Oh yeah. Why did Elsa let go of a balloon? Cause she let it go. Oh, very funny. But then that one was said and I was just like, Whoa, I like that. So, um, I remembered it to this day. It's a good one. If you remember a little boy in um, reception once said to me in school, um, you know, what cheese do you use to get a bear down from a tree? And he said, come on, bear. I mean, I was crying with laughter, but all the rest of the children, nobody else laughed because no other children had heard the word camembert. <laughs> he and I were just crying with laughter, but yeah, it didn't go down very well with the other children. <laughs> no. no, but yeah, I, I love that. That's brilliant. Okay, we'll move on then to your primary three. And so these are three things about primary education that for you, Sarah, are three primary things, really important things about primary education. For our listeners, it can be anything, really. It can be ideas, resources, philosophies, uh, approaches you've used in your school, absolutely anything. Uh, And so for the three you've chosen, which you've sent ahead of time, the first one you've said is to get outside. Um, And why for you, Sarah, is that uh, such an important thing about primary education? Well, the three I've chosen are very much philosophies and Get Outside is very personal for me because I've just written a book um, around outdoor play for well-being. And I was really lucky. Um, Routledge uh, approached me and said, we've got this new um, series of books all about mental health of young children and we'd like you to write one about outdoor play. Um, And I thought I knew a lot about outdoor play. I've always been very passionate about it. But actually, when you start to research something, you find out more about it. And I realised there was so much that I didn't know about it. Um, And having done the research for the book, statistically, um, it's clear that children are becoming more and more unhappy. You know, mental health is a real issue. As we all know, people working in schools, um, one in 10 children is suffering with a mental health issue. Um, And statistically, children are waiting at least one year to be seen uh, within the NHS to, to get treatment. Um, And linked to that is a decline in outdoor play. And statistically, it shows that children are having less time outside these days than prisoners in a maximum security jail. There's a fantastic short film that's been made by Purcell a few years ago, um, interviewing prisoners in, in high security prisons and talking to them about the fact that they get more time outdoors than young children do. And obviously they're completely shocked by this and saying, well, you know, if you had the choice, surely you would be outside as much as possible. And unfortunately, there's lots of things linked to this. I I feel that in our culture, there's um, a larger degree of surveillance now. And in my book, we look at some case studies where people have actually called the police because of outdoor play. Um, A grandmother um, had the police called. She was out with her grandson in the woods uh, and the police actually escorted her out of the woods and she was simply making a den. And there are more and more sort of occasions of this and and case studies of this happening. I think people are almost becoming suspicious now about young children playing outside, outside settings. 
And I think there's also been an effect within settings in terms of settings being worried about how parents will react. And also, of course, the the formal demands of the curriculum and increased testing. So children are just getting outside a lot less. And consequently, there's something called sensory dysfunction, which is happening to children. Uh, where children are experiencing fear of the outdoors, uh, they're experiencing myopia, trouble with their their eyesight, and there are physical detriments as well. Uh, children are becoming less coordinated. Um, it's really scary. I read a really good book by Angela Hanscom called Balanced and Barefoot, which was kind of life changing, all about research that they've carried out in America, uh, looking at children, the effect of a lack of outdoor play on children. And I've definitely seen that more in more recent years um, in the settings where I've worked. Um, Children spending so much time in controlled environments, man-made environments. And the solution to to all of this, I feel, or most of this with mental health issues and sensory dysfunction, is when children get to choose how they play in a wild space. They're developing these creative thinking skills, problem solving, um, resilience. They develop this sense of competence. They, I think, very much... They're at the moment, they're feeling incompetent. It's very much a deficit model. You can't do this. You can't do this. Um, And they're beginning to lack in confidence. The Children's Society has highlighted that anxiety is a real significant issue for children. Um, It's becoming worse every year, year on year. Um, And according to self-determination theory, children and well, not just children, everybody needs these three things. They need to experience competence, autonomy and relatedness. And you get that through outdoor play. You know, children get to feel more competent. They, especially if they're in a more wild space outside during their play, uh, you know, they're climbing trees or they're just clambering over logs uh, and they get to become more competent and com- become more confident and confident in their own more abilities. And they have that sense of autonomy. They're not always, always being uh, under surveillance by adults. Um, and they get that sense of relatedness. And when they're outdoor, outdoors playing, there are adults there who are supporting their play and facilitating it, but giving them that level of autonomy as well. Um, and that's what they need to feel good and function well. Well, first of all, I need to say that, that it sounds very well researched. And obviously your book that you mentioned, like, it's, it should be something that people look into because I think that uh, clearly there's a lot of research behind this and a lot of understanding about the science of you know what is happening to children these days and like you mentioned some of the statistics there which are scary um about you know just how it's having an impact and how it is um just pushing children towards you know this stifled atmosphere where you know they aren't able to make those creative skills develop you know through through interacting with their atmosphere bring reminds me of actually recently my daughter well i say recently a month or two ago she went to a birthday party and they actually went to this outdoor area and it was absolutely i think like to this day is in my mind the best birthday party i've ever been to as an adult never mind as a child because they basically went into these woods and they built dens they they cooked you know on an open fire they had these like trampolines made through the trees and things like that it's absolutely amazing and i just thought you know i stood there thinking this is brilliant because it's just another dimension completely being added on to what you know what would naturally just normally be in a room playing these games which is great and fun uh, but actually in taking it outside and enjoying that is is great obviously the weather helped it was dry <laughs> uh, and i think that, that is sometimes a bit something people worry about but actually like you say it is something which is being lost in a, in our society today i suppose as a teacher then in the classroom you know how how, how can we make that difference what impact can we have with our class uh, thinking about this philosophy then I mean, it's about balance, and I'm certainly not rejecting, um, say, modern technology. Uh, You know, there's definitely a place for that, and it's really beneficial. But it's just ensuring that there is a balance. And I think we all see, as educators, the impact of children out of school spending so much uh, less time outdoors. I think there's a lot of barriers as well that perhaps educators put up um, about children not being able to go outside so wet weather weather when I did a survey was the number one barrier Um, I mean I did speak to some settings one nursery setting for example who had absolutely no outdoor space Um, but you'll see in my book they had a really creative solution to this and it's just amazing what people can do when they put their minds to it 
Um, so I, and I understand people have to share space sometimes. I spoke to many teachers who were saying, well, we can't go outside until that group come in. And, and that's really, really tricky. But weather was the number one issue. And I just think if you as an adult are comfortable, if you have the right clothing, there's no reason really to ever not go out. Having spoken to nurseries who are outside all day long, I spoke to one nursery teacher who is in the north of Scotland, so possibly the most extreme weather that we experience, and certainly the coldest, and they don't have any indoor access at all, and they've got toddlers, and they are outside all day long, snow, rain, hail. Um, so I just don't think we really have that excuse. I mean, she was saying, this nursery teacher, that the people who are drawn to work there are people who enjoy being outdoors. Uh, but I just think it's a real shame, especially in Key Stage 2, you know, as a year six teacher, uh, when people would say, oh, you know, it is drizzling, so let's have wet play. And actually, it's short-term pain for longer-term gain. Isn't it? I mean, it, for longer it's it's not it's a bit painful isn't it in the afternoon when you've had wet play and you know they they didn't get time outside um so i would say in terms of the weather you know we shouldn't really make excuses and, and try and get outside anyway and it, it's not for me about spending a lot of money on the outdoor environment what children really need i say this in one of the chaps in my books is loose parts key stage two children particularly as well as early years you know, cable reels, all those recycled materials, crates, you just see fantastic problem solving and creative thinking from year sixes, uh, you know, all the way down to nursery, uh, when children outside, they just need a less manicured space. And I say to people, you know, who is this outdoor space for? Is it for the children? Or is it for adults? And I think some educators are put under unnecessary pressure to make it look beautiful for visiting adults. I'm sorry, that's not who the space is for. You know, it's for children to develop and grow. Um, so I think if people can try and link the curriculum to being outdoors, um, you know, that's fantastic. But I just think it's a very bare minimum, getting outside at playtime, at break time, as much as possible and not limiting that. It really makes me feel sad when people's schools start to limit playtime, you know, start to reduce that because of, uh, curriculum demands I really don't think that's in, that's important I don't think that's needed mm. and like you say it, it's trying to make that balance obviously what you're not saying is you know be outside all the time or every day because that's just not manageable and also it's probably not the most effective but what you do need is that consistent balanced approach to making sure the children are outside first of all like you say and actually you mentioned the weather I do remember kind of earlier in my career being more like oh it is drizzling oh but then actually, when you get to the end of that break time, you kind of wish that they were outside because then you're moaning that they've had wet break all day. And it's like, well, you're the one that kept them in. So so why are you moaning about it? But like you say, if there's a bit of drizzle, oh, just get outside. They've got coats. And if children haven't got coats, obviously you can try and provide for them to make sure that they are safe and well outside. But, you know, getting them outside, enjoying that, that outdoor time, like you say, is the bare minimum that we can do. And if we can get them outside for curriculum and things like that, great here and there. But actually that time outside is what's needed and doing things like the daily mile and things like that just just finding creative ways to get out there and also do the curriculum if you can but make sure they're outside for some parts of the day i, I totally agree the daily mile is a fantastic you know way to get children outside um, and most schools do forest school now i'm a forest school leader but i do find that in a lot of schools you get a lot more forest school sessions in the children's early time at school so you know early years reception year one and two but it tends to drop off a little bit uh, when children are going into key stage two and I just think that's such a shame uh, in year six you know they and, and year five upper key stage two they need forest school um, just as much if not more because as a year six teacher I, I knew that the children you know up to kind of sat you know they, they were struggling and they had a lot to, to get through you know it's a stressful time um, so I think just as much, if not more than anybody else, they need that forest school time. And you really see fantastic learning and independence there where you know, year six are cooking over a fire, for example. Th those are life skills. Mm. And like you say, it doesn't have to be a huge chunk of the timetable, just little portions here and there just to get just to de-stress and get out and, and enjoy that, I think is great. 
Well, let's talk about uh, your second of the primary three then, because I think that's been brilliant. And obviously, uh, what we'll do is on our websites, once we can catch up with all the episodes we've done, we'll have resources to the books you've mentioned and things like that. So that'd be great for listeners to go find. Uh, your second of the primary three is this. And it's actually a quote uh, and a philosophy um, which says, challenges are gifts that force us to search for a new centre of gravity. Don't fight them, just find a new way to stand. Do you want to talk about, first of all, how you came across that quote, why that's important to you and what that kind of means for you in primary education Sarah? Well it's a quote by Oprah Winfrey Um, I mean she's just amazing and I'm full of admiration for Oprah for how she came through a great deal of trauma in early childhood um, to become so successful but also such a good supporter of other people Um, and we've all worked with children who have suffered significant trauma Um, And it's, as we know, it's so difficult to move beyond that. It has such a long lasting um, effect on people's lives. Um, But when I found this quote, um, it was part of doing some research um, for my book. And I was just thinking about the nature of challenges. And I was thinking about the importance of challenges um, for children. If children are always presented um, with sort of work that's fairly easy or um, throughout their day, they don't face many challenges. They don't develop resilience or perseverance. And and I think, obviously, I'm very passionate about being outdoors. And I think challenges outdoors for children are so significant. And I think they really add to their learning um, and just help them develop the characteristics that they need in terms of well-being, uh, but also just their holistic development. But it also made me think about us as educators and what challenges we face. And throughout my career as a teacher, I've sometimes been asked to do things that I felt weren't ethical and they weren't um, in the the best interest of children. Um, And I had to say no to those. And I really like the the way that Oprah says, you know, don't fight these challenges, just find a new way to stand. And having that in my mind was really helpful, just thinking to myself, okay, so just cite yourself slightly differently uh, and just think about how you're going to face this challenge. And I think it's very important um, at the moment, I'm, I'm going to be teaching at university and, and teaching uh, people who are going into, into teaching, so teaching trainee teachers. And I know as a new teacher, as an NQT, you're faced with things as you're um, developing as a teacher that sometimes you won't feel comfortable with. It might be part of the ethos of the setting where you are or part of the culture. Um, and you have to think to yourself, it's part of developing your identity uh, as a new teacher, developing what your personal values are um, and thinking to yourself, how do I stay true to those those values? At the end of the day, you have to think, can I sleep at night? <laughs> I mean, it, most of the time, you know, you, you may have to do things such as tests that you don't totally agree with, but you think, well, that's that's what the government has stipulated. You know, that's fine. We'll do that. But there'll be other things that are, in my view, a misrepresentation of what the government wants um, that you may think to yourself, I'm sorry, but I don't feel this is in the interest of the children. And you have to think about your legacy and think about the bigger picture and have a sense of perspective about it. And it's very, very stressful to say, I'm sorry, but I don't agree with this, especially if you're a lone voice. But I would say, don't be afraid of that and just think long term. Uh, And there's ways of putting it, of course, you don't have to be rude about these things. But if you really feel that something is not right and it's not in the interest of the children, I think you have to say something about it or at least find out more. You know, you you may be confused about it and you may find out and think, yeah, I am happy to do that. It was interesting when I gave a talk once in London, um, Amanda Spielman, uh, the chair of Ofsted, was in the audience uh, and came up to me at the break to have a chat to me. And one of the things she said to me, it really stayed with me. She said that she becomes frustrated when she hears that schools are misrepresenting what they feel Ofsted want Mm. and that's not a direct quote from Amanda Spielman but I just feel that some settings are misrepresenting what the government or Ofsted require Um, and as teachers there are going to be some things that are not fun to do but if it really makes you feel uncomfortable I think it's important um, to fight against that but as, as the whole quote says challenges are gifts Uh, As Oprah says, you know, just find a new way to stand, don't fight against these. But they are gifts. What can we learn from these? And I've faced some challenges, you know, throughout my teaching career. I'm sure we all have. It's not without its challenges. Um, But we do need to see these as gifts and reflect upon this 
you know, educators are generally quite reflective and just take time to think about uh, what we've gained from, from going through this and especially from fighting against things that we don't agree with and making sure that we are staying true to our values and that we're doing the very best for children um, that we can. So I just think the first part of that, that challenges are gifts, it's great for a school assembly, isn't it? I think ourselves and children, we need to consider that, that we do need some challenges, manageable challenges in our lives. We need to reflect on how we gain learning from those. Absolutely. I like as well how you obviously first applied that to, to children in the classroom that, you know, challenges, they need to take place. We shouldn't just have kind of a curriculum that just doesn't push them. You know, we do need to have challenge in there so they can develop that resilience and model that, I suppose, because, you know, if we don't model that as the teacher, how we solve problems, then then children will not know how to do that when problems come up. Uh, and then actually applying it to NQTs and actually all teachers, really, then when we're in a school where there's perhaps things that are happening that don't fit with our personal values, then finding ways we can approach that and deal with that. Like you say, not being rude about it, saying, well, no, I'm not doing that and dismissing completely, but having that professional dialogue, uh, you know, with that uh, that challenge that's come up that we're not too sure about, I think is really, really good points. So what we'll do uh, is we'll move on to the final of the primary three now. Uh, and uh, this obviously um, has been sent from you as well. Now, you've sent me one word. And so I'm going to let you kind of define what this word means to you and why that's important to you. The final of your primary three is placeness. So what, what is that? What First of all, what is placeness to you, uh, Sarah? Well, it's a really old word that doesn't get used very much anymore. The dictionary definition um, is the quality of having or occupying a place. It's very much about ownership. And while writing the book, I was thinking about children's place in the indoor and the outdoor environment. Um, of course, because my book's about well-being, um, I was very much linking to how children can feel good and function well. Uh, and of course, they need to feel they belong. We all do. Um, if we want to feel good about ourselves, we want to feel good about our lives, we do need to feel that we belong. Um, and I give an example in the book, actually, in a chapter about um, parents uh, and their relationship with the school, about the fact that one teacher, unfortunately, made me feel that I didn't belong. I moved schools when I was about nine or ten. Um, and in this new school, um, this teacher was was very negative about my family who were let's say alternative, you know, we'd moved down from London in the 70s. Uh, my dad had really long hair, he rode a motorbike. Um, and this teacher would make sort of unkind cutting comments about my family in front of the rest of the class. You know, my parents weren't like the other people in the village, let's be honest about it. But it really made me feel I couldn't trust her. And it eroded my my sense of belonging in the class, you know, the other children laughing at my my situation, my home life. Um, and I know in relation to some other people's experience of school, of course, that's it's not significant at all. But I do remember that. And I think that if children experience that um, erosion of their sense of belonging, it's so detrimental to their to their well-being. Um, but in looking at research for my book, I found that scientists have found that studies show that place, identity and well-being are really closely connected. Um, so in order to feel good about ourselves and we have to have that connection. Um, and as I said, where I was head of school was the school I went to as a child, which was amazing. It's such a, an amazing, unique little school. Um, it's a fabulous community. And I think the parents were really pleased that I had been a pupil at the school, so I knew the environment really well. And on my very first day there, when I went to meet the parents um, and all the children there, a little four-year-old came up to me and she said, do you know where the best hiding place is here? And I said, yes, I do. And she couldn't believe this. I said, because I used to go here. And when I was your age, I used to go and hide there. And I thought, I hope we think of the same place. <laughs> so I led her outside. She held my hand, took her outside. And there's this big kind of um, hedge made out of trees. Um, and we went behind there and there's a little hollow there. I used to hide as a four-year-old. And she said, yes, this, this is it. This is it. And the joy on her little face that we both had this same withdrawal, calm space. I'd enjoyed that many years before as a four-year-old. And now, you know, she'd been told about this by older children. And it's been handed down you know, through generations, this little place that's away from adult surveillance, still safe, still within, you know, the school premises, within the fences. But this lovely little withdrawal space that you could go and hide and feel comforted and, and in a private space had been handed down through these generations. 
And we all have these little spaces in our mind. And because play involves so many of your different senses, it makes your memories uh, much stronger. So as an adult, you remember those. If you think back to memories of a child, of, of being a child, it's mainly those play activities that you remember, mainly experience of outdoor play. Because you were engaging all those senses, it makes those memories uh, more vivid. Um, and I think everybody's got memories of different hiding places, you know, when they were little. And I think it's interesting if you take a group of children out to their outdoor space, particularly I'd say in early years, it's really interesting when you say, take them to their play area, the playground or wherever they go to, uh, to go outside and just say, whose is this? Just those three words. And I've had really interesting responses to that. So some groups of children will say to me, oh, this is our space. This is our playground. This is our field. And some children have said to me, oh, this is Mrs. So-and-so's. And I'm thinking, well, who is this space for? I think it's really vital for children's well-being that they feel that that is their space. And I'm not just saying that, you know, we set up everything for them. They are co-owners and co-creators of that space. So, you know, they are custodians. They should be taking charge of it. Um, even four-year-olds, you know, are able to do this. So obviously they can put out all the loose parts. They should be easily accessible. They can put them away again. Um, they when I was teaching reception, they would tell me, oh, Mrs. Watkins, you know, this crate cannot be used anymore. It's been outside in the frost. It's now cracked. So unfortunately, now we need to get rid of it. So, you know, they 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 do their own risk assessment as well. They're quite capable to do that as four year olds in partnership with us, who are, of course, overall in charge of their safety. Um, but children really desperately need to feel that sense of placeness. I just want to reclaim that word and, and bring it back. Uh, and make sure that children from nursery to year six feel that, that sense of placeness and sense of belonging and that we as adults are facilitating that for them. I love that. It's a great word. And like, like I say, one I've not used in my daily conversations. And I think that it's certainly interesting when you think about how children need to have that placeness and um, own that. And I think that obviously, like you say, younger children, like they can help with the creating of the like the continuous provision areas and what uh, you know what there's in their area that they can play with that's really important going right up to kind of key stage two and taking responsibility we talk so much as a year six teacher I've, I've worked in year six a number of years and we talk about them preparing for high school and looking after their things and their area and their belongings and so many children lack that skill because they've not had that opportunity to develop that that placeness as you say uh, but if they are given that as a, as class teachers listening to this and we can give children more skills and opportunities to develop their own areas to develop and look after their own things I think that is really powerful and actually thinking about as teachers in the school as well I think one of the biggest challenges that teachers have when they go to a new school is they don't yet feel that placeness they don't know where the photocopier is they don't know where you know to where they go to hide for just five minutes just to have a bit of time to themselves actually as adults we need to have that placeness as well um, I guess for you what is uh, a couple of tips you could give to a classroom teacher to help uh, develop placeness for children in their classroom from this discussion I mean, I think the issue that's facing teachers um, is time. Uh, and, you know, when I was a year six teacher, the curriculum demands are so heavy. Uh, I mean, you know, it's the same for all teachers, but I just felt particularly year six from September to May, you know, there was this huge pressure. Um, and it's the time really to enable children to take that responsibility. Uh, but in the long term, you know, that does allow you more time. But I think particularly in terms of placeness in the outdoor area, it's making sure that children understand that it's their area, they're custodians of it, making sure that they take responsibility for the equipment that's out there um, and making sure also that the older children um, are taking some responsibility for the younger children as well. I, talk, I was talking to um, a play researcher and he made a really interesting point that in quite a few bigger schools, the different age groups don't tend to mix very much. They are very segregated. And he said... In terms of his research, he'd found that that was quite detrimental. In terms of well-being, um, he said it works much better if there are occasions when sometimes during outdoor play sessions, the different age groups can mix. Um, I mean, I've worked in a school of 630 children and a school of 40 children. So, of course, the very small school and uh, the children were mixing, different age groups were mixing all the time. But if we can facilitate that in, in larger schools as well, it's apparently so beneficial um, for their well-being during those outdoor play sessions and really helps with placeness. 
But I think really it's just all those everyday routines, just thinking to yourself, how can I enable children um, to have more ownership at this stage? Um, And I know as an early years teacher, September, oh my goodness. I mean, if anyone is listening has facilitated a reception PE session in September, the medal is in the post. It's so, so hard. You know, you have 30 children and they're all trying to get changed and you're trying to encourage them not to take every item of clothes off because we don't need that. It's so, so hard. And also the first day of rain, trying to get, you know, 30 or so children into their salopettes and little puddle suits because, of course, they all want to go out in the rain. And that that's great. I do fully support that. But in those moments, I've thought, oh, my goodness, I'm doubting my my career choices and my my competency but if we can just take a moment and put our impatience to one side and think about the long term and just facilitate them becoming more independent but also having their ownership of the space I think it really does have huge benefits that's brilliant that's some great pieces of advice and top tips there I think that obviously you know those are things again the time stripped teachers who have got so many things to think about those are some very straightforward things that they can start to think about how to apply in their classrooms as we go through this first term and obviously older children mix with younger children hopefully that should be more possible now with with the restrictions and various things like that so that's certainly something that schools can now start to think right let's start applying this again which which would be great well thank you uh, sarah i mean we could have further discussion about all of these but i think it would go on for way too long and so uh, obviously people know where to find you on twitter and there's all the resources that you mentioned as well which we'll put onto our website got two final questions for you now sarah uh, what primary colleague or primary education inspiration would you recommend for a future interview on this podcast well, I'd really like to hear Mr. T and QTs on your podcast. Um, I recently uh, met him in real life. I'm going to be one of his colleagues, um, but having known him on Twitter for quite some time, I just really admire how helpful he is to people on Twitter. He's a fantastic source of support, um, and I really admire him for that. Nothing's ever too much for him, but I'd really like to hear his insights on primary education because um, he really is very insightful on, on issues that we're facing at the moment. So I would thoroughly recommend him. Excellent. Fantastic. And finally, Sarah, what for you is the best thing about being in primary education? Well, I'd say firstly, the variety. It's never boring. Uh, the time goes so quickly. At the end of the day, you just can't work out where the time went. It's always really interesting. Um, but also, of course, the children, they're the best things about it. Um, they learn a lot from us, but I have learned so much, you know, from the children in my classes. And sometimes they just stop you in your tracks and make you think. And I love that. They have such a unique perspective on things. And it's so joyful. What a privilege uh, to be involved in that career where you are working with these people, these young people who are so curious about life and so interested uh, and willing to have a go at things. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for your time on Primary Education Voices, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. Well, once again, another fantastic uh, episode. Sarah was brilliant. And I have to say, uh, hopefully you listening won't notice this, but there was this was probably the most uh, difficult uh, episode to record with interruptions that we had with uh, technology letting us down a rogue coffee maker and my son also uh, trying to make an appearance into the podcast too. Uh, it was uh, an interesting um, uh, interesting recording I think we had with Sarah, but I'm so glad that we did because uh, there were so many great things that she brought out in our chat. Uh, her primary three were brilliant and really thinking about the holistic child that we are trying to develop as teachers in the classroom, not just the maths and English side of things that we work on on a day to day basis, getting outside. And I love the way, actually, the way that Sarah spoke about the, the need to get outside, first of all, backing up with all the really important research that she's done for her book. Uh, clearly, the, the, just some of the headline figures that she shared there about one in 10 children suffering with suffering with some sort of mental health need. Um and them having to wait a year to be seen through the, the NHS procedure that we have at this moment uh, and how children, you know, on average, spend less time outdoors than, than prisoners do in a prison. You know, it's just things like that that just kind of open your eyes to just how uh, much we need to do uh, as much as we can in schools to get our children outside. But I also liked how she didn't try and 
then say that means that every lesson we do needs to be outdoors because realistically that's really not unmanageable I think personally as a classroom teacher but actually just stating the clear and consistent things we can do as teachers in the classroom to help our children get that outside exposure that they need you know make sure they're outside for play every day even if it is a bit wet get out, out outdoors with coats on because in in reality as I as I said in our chats you're probably going to suffer more the consequences of them having to have stayed inside for wet play than if you just get them outside for a little bit. Uh, and so I think that that is a, was a really good chat to have. Uh, and then number two, her primary, her second of the primary three, uh, the quote from Oprah Winfrey, which again was just a wonderful quote um, and talked about, you know, challenges being gifts. I'll share that quote again with you, actually. It says, challenges are gifts that force us to search for a new centre of gravity. Don't fight them. Just find a new way to stand. So, you know, it's recognising that the challenges that come across us on a day-to-day basis uh, in our work as a primary educator, they are ways for us to develop and change the stance that we are making. Not necessarily things to overcome, but just things we need to work through. Um, And I loved the way she applied it for children in the classroom for teachers in their school, for teachers that are new in their career or finding a challenge in their career. Uh, and actually, the discussion that she had about the conversation she had with uh, Amanda Spielman, head of Ofsted, was a really interesting insight as well. I mean, obviously, we, we've had this discussion about Ofsted on the podcast before, about how um, Ofsted have got, you know, this kind of... Um, boogeyman uh, kind of impression where you know whatever they they say we need to be aware of because otherwise they're going to beat us with a stick with it and obviously that has probably come through actions that have been had in the past from Ofsted and there is definitely some things that need to be considered with that uh, but actually you know it's clear to see that there are definite strides trying to be made by Ofsted in making it clear that certain myths that have been brought about from previous um, stances that they've had but they are now trying to remove from the from the consciousness of school leaders uh, are things that we don't need to be as concerned about or perhaps we need to think differently about uh, and you know that these challenges that come from school leadership because of what they think Ofsted want uh, can be things that we can try and challenge and address uh, in a school and do so pr- proactively and professionally as well and productively I think that it was a really important uh, discussion there. And thirdly, her discussion on placeness. And I love that word. I'm, I'm going to definitely use it in the future about how everyone, about children in our classroom, about how us as teachers in a school need to feel that placeness uh, and have that ownership of where we are, not just in the classroom, but in those outdoor areas as well. Some great thoughts there to take away uh, as we go through uh, this autumn term uh, and think about our, our kind of future uh, career and our future practice uh, that we do in our that we use in our in our career all that's left for me to say is that if there's a primary colleague on the twitter sphere that you'd love to hear more from please let me know on twitter either at prime edgy voices or me personally at m roberts 90 matt and let me know what inspiring primary teacher ta support staff leader whoever you would love to hear on the featured featured on a future episode let me know Please subscribe to the podcast. Please do share it with your fellow primary practitioners. Even better, if you could leave a review on your podcasting platform, that would really help get the word out and raise the primary education voice. Thank you again for joining me to hear another primary education voice and see you again next time when we will meet another inspirational educator.